0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Okay, good afternoon. And uh, welcome to another Carnegie event uh, that we're doing jointly with the American Arab Institute. Uh, we're going to talk today about public opinion on Iraq and the Arab Spring. And we're uh, dividing the, uh, uh, this afternoon uh, session into two uh, sessions one uh, or two panels one where we will focus on Iraq uh, and look at the views on US intervention and departure as we all know yesterday marked the end of the uh, US military presence uh, in Iraq and uh, uh, the Zogbi group conducted a poll in September and October that uh, looked at uh, Iraqis but also at people in the region views on uh, the departure and uh, uh, what it means for Iraq. And uh, in, that, in this uh, first panel we will have first Jim Zugby, the founder and the president of the American Arab Institute, uh, present the uh, uh, findings of the poll. and then we will have uh, uh, two colleagues and dear friends uh, comment on uh, uh, the findings. Uh, Edward Skip Kuname who is the Kuwait Professor of Gulf and Arabian Peninsula Affairs at George Washington University, but who I know uh, more closely and intimately as the American ambassador to uh, Jordan, uh, where uh, when I was still in government and we forged a very close relationship, and our own Marina Ottaway, the senior associate at the Carnegie Middle East program. We will have a short coffee break after that, and then we will uh, start the second panel, where we, look, we will look at political change and governance uh, in the Arab world in general, in six Arab countries that were also polled by the, the uh, Zoghbi group. Uh, again, Jim will present the findings. Uh, I will uh, comment uh, on these. Mustafa Hamarni, unfortunately, uh, uh, is in Canada right now. Uh, uh, came from Jordan yesterday on a plane that was diverted there instead of uh, to Washington because of uh, a sick person on the plane, so he unfortunately could not be uh, with us today. But perhaps we can ask Skip to also comment uh, on uh, the findings that Jim will present. So with that, I turn the floor over to Jim.
2: Thank you, Marwan, and thank all of you for coming. Um, I want to acknowledge up front that these polls were done Um, in September uh, of this year, uh, after the aid. And uh, they were done for the Surbanias Forum, uh, which is held annually in the United Arab Emirates. At that forum, we released uh, the polls there that dealt with the role of social media in Arab Spring. Uh, These two sets have not been released yet, and so I'm I'm releasing them now. Um, As Marwan noted, we polled in, in Iraq Uh, six other Arab countries, the United States and Iran, uh, in an effort to measure attitudes at this point toward the war itself, its impact uh, toward uh, the feeling that Iraqis and people in the region have about the future of Iraq in the wake of an American withdrawal, and how Iraqis see their country and the world. Uh, There are three essential observations I want to make up front that pretty much follow through all of the findings. The first and foremost, I think, is the, the divergent attitudes we find among three major Iraqi groups. I mean, we've come to talk about them a lot, but here we have some hard numbers to put to the differences in attitudes uh, between Kurds on the one side and Shia and uh, Sunni Arabs on the other. Then there are the, 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 there's the partisan divide that exists here in the United States. It is so deep that sometimes you get the feeling that Democrats and Republicans are looking at two different wars that took place in two different countries. And then finally, there are the, the attitudes of the respondents in the Arab countries and in Iran that both neighbor and are in some uh, proximity to, uh, to Iraq. Uh, those attitudes were more negative toward the war and more positive about the future of uh, Iraq's post-withdrawal um, prospects than the Iraqis themselves. Uh, I'm going to start, as I begin, with uh, the Iraqi people and their attitude toward the war general assessment. What you find is that um, overall, Iraqis feel that they're worse off uh, than they were after the war uh, itself. When we ask the question specifically, after eight years of war, are you better off or worse off than you were before the war began? 42% 42% worse off, 30% only say better off, and 23% say the same. You'll notice here the, the divide. Uh, as, I, as I pointed out, Sunni and Shia more inclined to say worse off. Only among the Kurds is there a sense that Iraq is better off or that their situation is better off than it was before the war began. When you ask in the broader region, you get a much more decisive response in terms of worse off. Uh, in Jordan and in Saudi Arabia, I'm not going to give all of the countries we polled. Those are in the booklet you have uh, in front of you, and the results are available if you want to log on to our website or write to the Arab American Institute. We can send you the whole poll. But in just Jordan and Saudi Arabia, the two countries most in the neighborhood, or closest to Iraq, um, almost two-thirds, say, worse off. In Iran, more uh, more than a half, but slightly less – uh, concerned about Iraq being worse off than, than Saudis and, and Jordanians. Um, overall, in the Arab world, about 6 in 10 say worse off. Look at Americans. When you split it up, Democrats, only 24% think Iraq was better off uh, than it was after the war, before the war, whereas 58% of Republicans say Iraq was better off. Uh, Iraqis are better off. This translates to when you ask the question, was the war worth it? Overall, 56% of Americans say it wasn't worth it. 75% of Democrats say it wasn't worth it. But a plurality of Republicans, 43% say that it was, in fact, worth it. When we ask questions of Iraqis as to how the war impacted various aspects of their lives, did it improve their personal safety and security? Did it improve education? Did it make them freer? Did it make them uh, respect the rights of women more? In almost every instance, the results pretty much track the numbers we have here for effect on personal safety and security. And what you see is that overall, Kurds largely give the war a positive rating in terms of how it impacted their lives, whereas Sunni give it overwhelmingly negative, and Shia only slightly Uh, more positive, but still a a substantial majority negative. And again, among Democrats and Republicans, by two to one, Republicans seem to always want to find the war having had a positive impact, Democrats um, much less so. Where you see the numbers don't go up to 100, it's because there were people who weren't sure, which was itself interesting, I think. In some of the instances you'll see, the 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 no impact or not sure numbers equal almost thirty sometimes thirty five percent, which is somewhat surprising after eight and a half years of a highly debated and highly contested war here at home, which took a tremendous toll in lives and treasure. That you have, you know, about a third of Americans with either no opinion or uh, or, or 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 sort of ambivalent about what the outcome or the the consequences of this were. Is the withdrawal positive or negative? Decisively, Americans, Republicans, and Democrats say it was positive. It is positive. It is something they look forward to. Among Iraqis, it's the same. Iraqis overall, 60%, with Shia more highly supportive of withdrawal. Sunni and Kurds, though, in the majority, still saying that it was, it was positive. Um, What emotions do you feel about withdrawal? And here, the convergence of attitudes you have between Iraqis and Americans, that a withdrawal is positive, breaks down when you say, how do you feel about the withdrawal? Americans, very happy overall. Democrats, overwhelmingly happy. Republicans, still almost 60% happy. But Iraqis, the plurality worried. Worried about the outcome of what will happen now that American forces are leaving with Sunni Uh, Arabs, in the majority, being worried about the outcome. Why are they worried? Ask what their concerns are. Almost 60% say they're worried about a civil war, worried the country being split into part, worried about terrorism, worried about economic. In almost every instance, the questions we ask about what are you worried about coming up in the future, almost 60% say that they're worried. And that goes across the board between Sunni, Shia, and Arabs on the one side, and Kurds on on the other. Um, Optimism and pessimism about the next four years. While Iraqis are worried, um, Arabs are not. Almost almost an insensitivity or a disconnect between Arab attitudes about this war and about how Iraqis themselves are are feeling about it. two-thirds Jordan, 75% uh, in Saudi Arabia are optimistic uh, about the next four years in Iraq, and 60% in in Iran. When we ask Iraqis to assess other countries, how do they feel about other countries uh, and the role that they might play in the future? Only 24% favorable attitude toward America, 7% among Sunni, 25% among Shia and 63% among Kurds. The Iranian numbers, only 2% of Sunni and 5% of Kurds have a favorable rating toward Iran, whereas 41% of Shia do. And in Turkey, Shia 53% favorable rating, 40% among Sunnis, and only 5% of Kurds with a favorable rating toward Turkey. UAE is one of the few countries that actually was rated positively uh, across the board. Uh, Saudi Arabia had fair, uh, favorable numbers in several in, among several of the uh, of the groups, but not uh, not across the board, bringing its overall number down to to 39. Democracy can it work or won't it work? This was almost the definition of being conflicted. I'd like my country to be a democracy and it'll work here, 21 percent. I want my country to be a democracy, but it won't work here, 41 percent. I don't want my country to be a democracy because it will not work here, 20%. Meaning that 40, I'm sorry, 62% of Iraqis would like their country to be a democracy, but 61% of Iraqis don't think a democracy will work in their country. Attitude toward Iraqi leaders. Nouri maliki the prime minister, uh, has a favorable rating actually only uh, among Shia. Uh, Ayad Alawi has a favorable rating among Sunni and Kurds, a uh, less favorable rating among Shia. He actually is the more popular leader overall in terms of rating uh, of all of the people that we polled in the country. Uh, and Muqtada al-Sadr is more favored among uh, Shia than any other uh, Iraqi that we, that we surveyed and look at very low favorable ratings among Sunni and Kurds. The issue here of Iraqis being conflicted, I think, comes through. They're being divided also comes through. The fact that Americans have sort of a weird but deep partisan split also comes through. Um, one can't blame the Iraqi people for being conflicted and divided. I mean, after years of ruthless rule and an invasion and occupation and then accompanying it terrorism and ethnic cleansing. Uh, While the trappings of democracy have been set up, the country um, is somewhat dysfunctional at this point. And so Iraqis are deeply worried about the future. Happy America's going, worried about what happens now that America goes, and don't quite see their way through uh, to the future. I think I'll leave it there, Marwan, and we'll hear what the folks here have to say.
1: All right. Thank you very much. A couple of surprises uh, here, things that we've expected, but things that uh, uh, I guess many of us did not expect. Uh, let me turn it uh, over to Skip. Skip, of course, was uh, American, the American-U.S. ambassador to Kuwait during the first Gulf War, and as such has, I think, a uniquely unique perspective on these issues. Uh, thank you, Marwan. It's
3: nice to be here today, and thank you very much, Jim, for For your presentation. I I was intrigued, uh, of course, by the polls and the results, and I I felt that my first reaction was that it does confirm many of the things that we had sensed would be the case, and I I particularly think of the three demographic groups in Iraq, the fact that they were going to have different attitudes about certain of the questions that that you asked, uh, particularly like U.S. presence, the Kurds always seeing the American presence as, as very supportive uh, on the questions of whether or not uh, we are w- worse off or better off, and particularly the concerns about the future. If I looked at the, the, whether we're better off or worse off, the first thought that um, came to mind was that it's really understandable, given what the Iraqi people have been through since 2003. And I really did like the phrase that you selected, gestational state. I think that really does capture uh, in, a, in, a, in a correct way that it's, it's sort of at that point in life um, where there's still a lot that can happen and a lot of formation that needs to take place. Um, it's easy to forget um, or to rationalize, if you're an Iraqi today, um, the, better, the better past to think back on the days of Saddam Hussein, let's be straightforward about it, when they could say that violence hardly existed, at least violence on the street. There was certainly uh, other kinds of violence. Uh, That uh, generally safe conditions, the schools worked, uh, different things happened, job security. Most people worked for the government and all of these things have been really turned upside down. And so today, they see a situation in which there's a great deal of uncertainty. So it's easy to understand how those percents that you found are likely to be the way they are. But I'll make this uh, prediction for the future, because it's a human nature. If things do improve in Iraq, if things do get a bit better, you're going to see that comparison uh, shift. And we'll see more people in Iraq uh, saying, we are better off uh, than, than we were before. Um, I was impressed, frankly, with the similarity of views between Shia and Sunni toward what had and hadn't improved. This is, uh, uh, on a, I think you, you showed it, but when you look at those two communities, uh, political freedom has not improved, economic development has not improved, education has not improved, health care has not improved, personal safety, security, uh, relations with the neighbors also very negative, government hasn't improved, women's rights a little bit better, but haven't improved. So it's really only, in, as, as I think, in religious freedom where the Shia clearly see that they have a better situation than they did before. But I think you know, that commonality between two communities that are often at odds with each other is worth, is worth taking note. On the question of withdrawal, I think it's clear to most observers who know any of the history about Iraq that it's not surprising that virtually all communities in Iraq support the end of the US military presence. Uh, if you know say anything at all about history, even under the monarchy, I think, of, of just after World War II when the, the government then signed a renewed agreement with the British, which did, in fact, have the immunities involved. The streets were in turmoil. There was rioting. Uh, there was a call for the execution of whoever signed the agreement, the prime minister who did. Uh, left the country in the middle of the night, never to return. So there's a whole history of Iraqi nationalism that's very powerful and very potent. And uh, to have thought that we were going to get a a continuation of the status of forces agreement is really very simplistic. Uh, I say that, though, and with one uh, point of criticism, I think the administration really didn't approach the whole issue of an ongoing military presence appropriately or in a way that might have led to a a different uh, conclusion. But certainly, uh, given the political fragmentation at the center, we weren't going to find any political figure that was going to stand up and say, we want US forces here, and they can have the immunities that they had before. Just impossible. Worried about the future? Uh, Absolutely, and I think they have every reason uh, to be. Um, but I did notice and note the concern about domination by neighboring states and not unhappy as an American to see that Iran managed to be up there at the front with us uh, in terms of uh, concerns by all three communities, incidentally, over uh, their involvement. Um, Kuwait, (laughs) along with, uh, 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 with Iran, are not considered a country that's likely to be helpful uh, to um, Iraq. And I was intrigued that Jordan received such high ratings in a very positive way. And so I wanted to to take a moment and talk about Jordan, which was mentioned uh, in several places in the poll, but also a bit of Kuwait, which is not in the poll, but I I think I can share with you some insights. I just got back a few days ago from there, uh, that 61% see, if Jordan now see Iraq worse off, um, see the U.S. 60% as chiefly beneficiary, but also Israel <laughs> and Al-Qaeda, uh, and um, and say that uh, 92% of Jordanians believe that the U.S. made a negative contribution in Iraq. Uh, deep concern about the future of Iraq. They mentioned civil war, uh, terrorism, uh, the foreign neighbor influence. Um, I think all of this is very... Uh, unsurprising when you realize that the Jordan, the Jordanian public at least, was very, very heavily against any sort of military intervention by the United States, Uh, made it quite clear uh, prior to 2003 that the ties that Jordan has had with Iraq over time, both economic, and this was trade, but also oil, uh, that they received in concessionary rates, the port of Aqaba, which was so critically important to the Iraqis during the Iraq-Iran war. There are these ties and a sense of of, um, of a presence just on their east. And, and, and therefore, these concerns that you see the Jordanians uh, speak about, I think, are again, I think legitimate. They worry about Iraq being dominated uh, by Iran. Uh, it's the Sunni issue, certainly. Uh, they worry about the turmoil and chaos inside Iraq with the resulting, say, flow of, uh, of refugees from the country as they saw uh, in 2003, 4, 5, and 6. And they also would see a disruption in the economic trade relationship, which has been pretty much reestablished. So I, I think those views are really quite understandable. Kuwait uh, is is unique, and we have to, to say that openly and forthrightly. Um, the Kuwaitis... I think, I know the government for a fact, I, I think it's quite clear about the population as well. They would have just as soon have a stay in Iraq for as long as they could possibly figure out how to keep us there. Uh, they are suspicious and they are, are, are certain in their minds that Iraq remains a threat, will be a threat. They don't see the hist- historic relationship being so different, though they, they claim and hope so and are trying so. Uh, having an American military presence is a security blanket. Uh, compensated for today by a decision by the U.S. government to continue to have a military presence in Kuwait itself. That's um, that suffices to go part of the way. But they really have they the Kuwaitis really have little confidence uh, in the way, particularly again the fragmented political situation uh, in Baghdad and the willingness of legislators in uh, Baghdad to use the Kuwait uh, situation for their own political ends. And I'll quickly add, there are plenty of Kuwaiti politicians who are doing the very same thing from their perspective. So let's let's sort of keep this in balance. I have just a few quick thoughts, if you'll give me just a couple more minutes. Um, Polls. These are clearly based on individual attitudes, and and it's good. But I learned a long time ago in my service that people, uh, by the nature of us all being human beings, can hold very contradictory feelings same inside of us. And we rarely pull ourselves apart, look at ourselves, and see it. And I think of my time in Jordan, but it's been in other countries in the region where I've had passionate attacks on, on me, not me personally, but on the United States for what it is and does and doesn't do. And having them turn right around and say, so you have to do something. Well, do you mean you? really have enough confidence in asking the one you just said was no good that do something but then we'll end up having a longer conversation because it's dinner and they'll talk to me about their children who are in school in the states they'll talk to me about medical problems that they've had in other words it's it's not unheard of that people inside themselves have very contradictory feelings and emotions and i think that's something always to keep in mind the poll of course doesn't cover the attitudes of governments. It's not intended to, and this is not meant to be a critical remark at all. It's simply to say that let's don't forget, when we're looking at public opinion, and I do believe that public opinion amounts more today than it did a couple of years ago, governments still are the main drivers of foreign policy. And decisions by government leaders, while they'll consider the public views, certainly are going to still make decisions of their own national interest, and that's going to impact on their relationships, just as we see the Saudis as in the, their reaction to a Shia-controlled um, uh, ir- Iraq at this point in time. Um, will the U.S. withdrawal uh, provoke a debate in the region? It does. You know, it, it, the debate now is: Is the U.S. a reliable? security partner. Are we, uh, in fact, a diminishing power, fading out, can't be counted on? We need to find alternative um, security arrangements. And I would just say this, uh, this widespread sort of discussion in, in the region that the U.S. is a declining power is, is not true. And I have spoken about it in Kuwait recently, and I've done so in other countries. The US commitment and the interest that we have in the region are going to keep us there. And therefore, we are not likely uh, to be leaving. But the United States government has an enormous um, uh, task in front of it, which is to convince people that that is indeed true. This whole idea then of Arab governments reaching and looking for alternatives, and Turkey is always a good example today of being an alternative uh, partner in the security ranges of the Gulf, or the expansion of the GCC military capacity um, in the Gulf, or a more assertive Arab League. And often these are described as actions governments are having to take because of their concern about US commitment. I I think that's wrong too, because in fact, the United States has been pushing these governments to do some of these very things. We are happy to have Turkey more engaged in the region. We have wanted for 20 years to see the Gulf Cooperation Council have a better security arrangement and a capability. Uh, The same would be be true of the Arab League, and and certainly we were closely cooperative. So I don't see this as a zero-sum game at all, and I don't think people in in the U.S. government do, but see it as a way of enhancing, frankly, uh, the American partnership uh, in the region. And I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Skip, for this regional perspective as well as uh, a U.S. perspective uh, on uh, the issue. Um, let me ask Marina to uh, give her comments before we open it up to the floor. Okay.
4: Uh, thank you very much. I will start with something that I did not mean to talk about, but I'll, I just want to add something to your last comments about the U.S. Uh, pres- the sort of this perception that the U.S. is losing power. I just came back a short time ago from a trip to the Gulf, and I heard a lot about, people are talking a lot about this, and my impression is that... It's not that they wanted the US not to have the presence, you are absolutely right, but they are afraid that the United States is no longer capable of keeping things under control. That seems to me is really the, the crux of that discussion, is not so much you guys go away as, oh my God, you cannot keep order in this part of the world any longer. It seems to me that that is really, at least that that's what I've been hearing. I want to make a few comments about what I found most interesting or most surprising in the Polls, and then raise the question in light of what has been happening in the last uh, uh, weeks or last few months essentially, uh, you know, how this, uh, whether these polls uh, still reflect to the common, uh, you know, present concerns, or we would find a different situation. Of course, we can only speculate, but let me start with what I think that was, I found uh, most interesting. The fact that one th- uh, one third of Americans really have no clear uh, opinion on whether the uh, you know of what has been the outcome of this uh, of this war. Uh, first of all, it is uh, obviously it's in contradiction with other. Uh, uh, w- w- with some of the answer to the earlier question that seemed to be very clear opinion about whether the, w- the war was worth it and so on. But more, the most important point here is it's a good reminder of how much of the, war has, the war in Iraq really dropped off the radar screen for most Americans recently. That's a war that was forgotten very quickly. Past the surge, past the initial attack, past the surge, essentially, everybody rushed to put it out of their mind. And that is, why I th- and that is reflected in the fact that people are not really sure what they think about, uh, the, about the situation now. Because if you think about it, there has been very little discussion of it in the press, in the media. And we read the Washington Post and the New York Times, I assume most of us, and uh, uh, the major newspapers. I think if you go to a small town, I go away from Washington very often on weekends. And believe me, the local newspaper where I go does not talk about Foreign news, and that is what most people read, right? This kind of local newspaper, and there has not been a word about uh, about Iraq for a long time. So, this, uh, the, for a country that was, after all, in a very sub- important conflict, I think this is very, very interesting. Um, I found very interesting this. Relative optimism of neighboring countries, of people in neighboring countries about the future of of Iraq. And this may be very well uh, a a very important reminder about how we should not confuse the opinion that are expressed by leaders with the opinions of the majority of the population. Because if you, again, if you go to that area and you try to, and you talk to government officials, you talk to, or quote-unquote, opinion leaders. You talk to the intellectuals, the journalists, and so on and so forth. The uh, the uh, attitudes, uh, to the, the pessimism about the future of, uh, of Iraq is very, very strong, particularly in the Gulf. What you hear is doomsday scenarios about how Iraq is now completely dominated by Iran, essentially, that that country is... You know, going to become an appendix to uh, uh, to the uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 Iranian Republic, to the Islamic Republic of Iran. The yeah. argument, <clears throat> this is a cliche, but you still hear it all the time. The United States served uh, served Iraq to Iran on a silver platter. The country was better off before, and so on. It's clearly not reflected in public opinion, which is again. Uh, the United States is not the only country where the public is really not very much in the loop, if you want, about what the, what the attitudes are. Uh, very interesting also, I think, is this last, uh, the attitudes towards Iraqi leaders. And while I cannot really read the figures very well because I'm seeing the graph at this length, but the fact that Muqtada Sadr has... That there is not that much a difference between Muqtada Sadr and Nurial al Maliki, hmm. both in terms of positive, positive and negative attitudes. It's not, a huge <coughs> uh, the, it, it's not a huge difference among the Shia population. And I think that it is a very good reminder, essentially, of uh, things that we are seeing developing now. First of all, how dependent Maliki is on Muqtada Sadr. Uh, that it's, Moktada Sadr is as popular as he is. Essentially, it, uh, probably Malik, it would be very difficult for Maliki to maintain the support that he has among the Shia population if it if it was not for Moktada Sadr, which also explains the point that you raised about why Maliki really could not say yes to the American presence because Moktada Sadr, to I mean, to con- extending immunity to american troops so that they could stay because moqtada sadr had made it quite clear that you'd pull out of the uh, of the the coalition if uh, if the uh, maliki or the yeah, maliki was to extend such a uh, such immunity so i think that is really uh, a good reminder that graph of in essentially of how bifurcated the leadership of uh, of uh, uh iraqis that we think of Nurial maliki but it's really Nurial maliki plus muqtada sadr and that is really the core of the uh, uh, of the control on the country uh, the not the opinions about uh, alawi are not surprising he was after all the representative of uh, the sunnis and to some in uh, the kurds are certainly uh, <coughs> discussed uh, long and hard uh, the possibility of forming an alliance with him rather than with Maliki in the formation of the government, so that's not surprising, but it's really the, the very similar uh, attitude so, towards al Maliki and Muqtada Sadr. Uh, the last point that I want to bring up in terms of the result is a very what I really found surprising is the fact that such a small percentage of Kurds have uh, a positive attitude about Turkey. Because that, is, that seems to contradict, essentially, what we have seen lately. I would not have been uh, surprised if t- those opinions had been... Uh, uh, had been expressed in 2003, or even in 2004 and five. Actually, I would have been surprised that it was as high as 5%. But at this point, I mean, when you talk to the Kurds now, when you talk to Turkish officials, they talk a lot about the very positive role that uh, Turkey has uh, is playing in the area, in terms of investment, in terms of developing uh, the, the building infrastructure, uh, Turkey seems to have more or less accepted the, the situation. They never liked the idea of an autonomous Kurdistan be, for the obvious reasons that they fear the same demands. Uh, in, the, in their own country, but yet all the indications have been that there has been a rapprochement, essentially, that or at least that Turkey and, Kurdi, uh, uh, and Kurdistan have found the modus vivendi in a rather positive one, and this seems to, to be like that, again, that showed that at the level of public opinion, if not at the level of leaders, data suspicious of Turkey still is is very much there. And I, that I really did not expect uh, to see. <coughs> Let me move now to uh, discuss a bit what is happening n- right now, because the uh, if you uh, have been following uh, closely, the not only have the last uh, uh, the last couple of months before the withdrawal of U.S. troops being uh, been very difficult. Essentially, there has been an increase in. There has been an increase in, uh, in violence in the country. There has been an increase in terrorist attacks. But the developments that took place just this last week and over the weekend have been positively dramatic. Yeah. In other words, just after the, uh, you know, we all heard last week all the, the, all the, the, the speeches that were given, uh, you know, Obama and Maliki and uh, so on about all the uh, uh, the positive things about... And what we are seeing now—I mean, the impression that one gets—is that things are falling apart in uh, in uh, Iraq much faster than anybody expected. In other words, that there has been—it's almost as if uh, uh, you know everybody was waiting for the last convoy to get out. To really do some of the things that they wanted uh, that they wanted to do all along, essentially Iraqia is no longer part of not only it 's no longer part of the coalition it 's open to discussion of how much Iraqia was ever part of the governing coalition. yes, in theory, they were part of the government, but it 's always they were very marginally part of the government, but they are not even participating in the parliamentary se- uh, sessions any longer they have pulled out of the parliament there are <clears throat> arrest warrants out for some of the many, not against Talawi himself, at least, not that I'm aware of, but certainly against all sorts of prominent personalities within Herakia. In other words, there seems to be a very clear uh, uh decision taken by Maliki that, uh, you know, they're not going to be very patient <coughs> with, the, uh, with the Sunnis, essentially, that the Sunnis are not going to be an integral part of the government, and that, of course, uh, that justifies, essentially, and explains why <coughs> all Iraqis, no matter which group uh, they belong to, has expressed Already several months ago, such <coughs> strong concern about the future. Happy to see the Americans going, but 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 what's going to happen? What's going to happen next?
3: You also and have the moves against the vice president.
4: The moves against the vice president. In the last yes, forty-eight
3: hours. Uh,
4: and the, uh, yeah, there is a whole list. And also, what you we have seen not only in uh, in the last in the last few weeks, a even more pronounced trends. By, uh, towards the regionalization of the country that is trained by pr- uh, various provinces to try to set themselves up as autonomous uh, regions or semi-autonomous regions. Although uh, we always refer to a uh, to, uh, uh, Kurdistan is a semi-autonomous region, I don't think it could be much more autonomous than it it is now and still be, I think it's semi-independent, it's an (laughs) autonomous region that's semi-independent in reality, it's not semi-autonomous but what we see, an increase in the trend, that has been developing over the last Mm -hmm. two years essentially, on the part of more regions to set themselves up as, uh, excuse me, of provinces trying to set set, uh, themselves up as regions, there are a lot of things that uh, I certainly don't know. I'm sure somebody in the intelligence community does, but I don't know about who is financing this trend uh, towards the uh, the uh, uh, the creation of more regions rather than provinces, because of course not everybody has. Uh, not everybody has an oil revenue like Kurdistan, and that at this point uh, they do not get share in, the, sorry, in the, uh, the the oil revenue to the same extent so <coughs> in a sense, what we are seeing now is the realization of everybody 's fears of those fears that <coughs> you documented in uh, uh, in the, the opinion survey a few months ago, and all seems to come to pass. It would be very interesting to see to know what the opinions would be if the polls were taken again uh, right now. And let me stop there.
1: Marina, thank you very much for uh, some very perceptive remarks. (coughs) Before I open it up, I'd I'd like to uh, maybe uh, take the first shot uh, and ask Jim uh, uh, about uh, implications for democracy in the region. I mean, the polls seem to suggest that the Iraqi government is no more responsive to the needs of every You know, the the daily needs of, uh, of Iraqis than other Arab governments that have not gone or are going through transitions are responsive to their own publics. If this is true, what does it say about sort of democracy in Iraq eight years after the war and democracy in the region? Uh, that is undergoing transitions, uh, but uh, where people still don't see that eight years after the war, their own government is being more responsive to their needs uh, than before?
2: Well, it was an infantile fantasy of the neocons in the first place, that that, that Iraq was going to be the regional model. Um, And everything was done, actually, to subvert Iraq being a democracy, uh, in the way government was structured. Um, it was structured as a sectarian model, um, which is inherently not democratic. And um, we're seeing that play out at this point. Um, so I, I didn't see Iraq a model. I don't think that the region will, will as a whole. I, I, didn't, I also didn't believe that if Iraq succeeded, it would be the beacon that would light the way to the whole region. Um, it was not done by the people. It was done by a foreign government. Uh, Tunisia is more of an example of how people can, from the bottom up, create change. That is the sort of the the, the trial run that inspires. Iraq doesn't. Um, it, it's a, it certainly is a tragedy though to see this this situation um, uh, unraveling. I, I just want to make the the comment that to me the problem isn't that we withdrew. Uh, or that we set the date for withdrawal. It's that we didn't take advantage of the time between when we set the date and when we withdrew to create, help create structures that were more sustainable than what we left. It seemed that we, we did everything right to get everything out, um, and in Kuwait waiting to be positioned elsewhere. But what we didn't do was help create sustainable institutional structures in the government, in the country, or in the neighborhood to create a regional security arrangement with the neighbors uh, who were going to be involved, we knew they were going to be involved, they already were involved, uh, but they were involved under the table, not sitting around a table, finding a mechanism uh, of how to, how to move forward. I just want to make one comment on, on, on uh, marina 's um, observations about the the, the ambivalences the, the u s ambivalence and and, and skip the, the the Arab ambivalence toward the United States. Um, On the fourth anniversary of the war, I did a TV show, uh, my Abu Dhabi viewpoint show, with students in Baghdad and students in the US. I'll never forget the Iraqi woman uh, who very passionately, in one sentence, said, um, without pause, you have to leave. You have to leave. You you have to leave. Not now. (laughs) Just
5: like that.
2: Uh, And this is what comes through in in this. I didn't read these numbers, but but when we asked the questions about withdrawal, how long should U.S. forces stay? Almost a half of Iraqis said as long as needed, Mm -hmm. and 10% saying one year. Uh, Only 29% said leave as soon as possible. And that was across the board among Shia, Sunni, and Kurds, about a half or a little more than a half or a little less than a half among all three. On the US end, um, when should we leave? As soon as possible, 47%. Um, stay as long as needed, only 22%. So the, the, it seems the US was fed up and wanted out because, frankly, they never saw the point of it, this ambivalence issue. Um, we were detached from the war from the beginning. We never. It was never a shared sacrifice. It was never a, a, a country investment. Uh, in, in lives and treasure and, and in emotion. We didn't understand the country when we went in. I don't think Americans still... In the last poll we did, only about a third of Americans can still find Iraq on a map. After 4,500 people died from our country, only a third of us can find it on a map. Given that, it's like it's done, finished, get out. So the president did what people want to do, but Iraqis are saying, what what now? And And I think that there's... If anything, what, what, what this war may do, or the outcome of this war may do, is further impact America's image in the region as this thing unravels, if, if, if in fact it does.
3: I couldn't agree with you more, Jim. And the fact that you brought up these uh, statistics about us staying it really goes back to my observation that I went through quickly, which is mm-hmm. that we didn't use the time that we had a position there. Uh, if they had had more leadership on the part of the United States to get some of these decisions made structurally, uh, we would have had support among Iraqis for that. Yeah. We'd have opposition for sure because we're an outsider. But we, we had an opportunity that we, we simply didn't use. But your, your question, Marwan, about uh, Iraq as a model, I think for democracy, I think even from the very beginning, the way things unfolded in, in Iraq, it probably hurt the whole idea of democracy in the region, because more of my friends throughout the region said, if this is what democracy is all about, not for us. And they, of course, looked at the chaos. They looked at the, the uncertainty. They looked at the government that seemed um, constipated, unable to do anything, um, and, and, of course, not uh, bringing about anything beneficial to the population. And that's simply not what they wanted.
4: Um, the- On the issue of democracy, I mean, I agree with both comments concerning democracy. It's certainly not a model. I think it's very easy to forget that while certainly it's not a democratic country, it's an enormously pluralistic country. In other words, that uh, this is a country that really has a very large number of centers of powers at this point. It has large number of centers of powers. What you have, first of all, you have all these, uh, you know, large political alliances—not the parties as such, but these large political alliances fighting with each other. I mean, and these are real. These are real organisms. These are uh, groups to which people really owe an allegiance, whether it's Maliki's sta- uh, uh, state of law, whether it is Iraqia and so on. People are, you know, it means something to, uh, to the people involved. And of course you have Kurdistan, which is a, a, a totally different story. But there is beginning to be a real give and take between the prime minister and the parliament. How long it's going to go on I don't know, but uh, you know, don't don't uh, sort of uh, dismiss the, uh, the don't discount the speaker of the parliament, who is really a very important figure, mm-hmm. yeah, and center of power in his own right. And you are beginning to have more and more of these provinces that are claiming a degree of autonomy. And there are centers of power in the provinces, not just in Kurdistan, but in uh, in many different provinces. The problem is, and here is where the real danger is now, that is pluralism without rules. And pluralism without rules. I mean, you cannot have democracy without pluralism. But pluralism without rules is not going to, is not going to lead to democracy. It risk leading to chaos or leading to civil war. And I think here is where we come to the issue of the U.S. role, because I think one may, it's not so much that we did not build the institutions. I don't think you can build the institution. It takes time. You cannot just go out. There. We always talk about building institutions. In fact, it does not work that way in many ways. But we really did not. We rushed the process of writing the constitution and setting up a political system so much that there was never a chance for the Iraqis to try to reach some consensus about what they wanted. Iraq, we have forgotten uh, now, but what happened in 2005 in Iraq was an incredible feat of political engineering on the part of the United States that had nothing to do with the country because this is a country that, you know, still in state of war for a practical purposes, under occupation, it had it elected a constituent assembly, it wrote a constitution. And it, the constitution was supposed to be written between January and August. I understand from from people who were directly involved that it got it took so long to set it, to set up the mechanism for writing this constitution that in the end it took le- the constitution was discussed for less than six weeks. It was done in not you know. Essentially, it was a totally artificial process, essentially. So that there was never a gathering, a building of consensus about what the country wanted around this constitution and what we are seeing now, because the elections have created new centers of power. The system has created new centers of power, but there, are, there is no agreement on the rules.
1: All right, <laughs> let's open it up for questions. We have about 20 minutes. I would ask... Uh, people who uh, ask questions to identify themselves and where they're from, and uh, maybe we can take uh, three or four questions at a time to allow as many as possible to ask the questions. Please. Hi, my name is Hugh Reinstaff.
2: One of the scenes I was watching over the weekend was of a man who showed his three sons, and uh, his three sons had been killed by his neighbors. It's sort of like uh, looking at the Tutsi and the Hutu in Rwanda. Did your study take into consideration the um, still the bonding of former neighbors who were on both sides of the internal war? And how are you going to reconciliate that?
1: Okay. <laughs> Please.
0: Hossein uh, ibn Youssef, International Petroleum Enterprise, apologized for for being late, but I saw the uh, slide there, the attitude uh, uh, towards uh, uh, Iraqi uh, leaders, uh, and since the uh, the number and percentages of the Kurds and the uh, the Sunnis are much lower than the uh, the rest of the country, don't you think that that particular slide had to be normalized to show that huge difference there, because the Kurds and the Sunnis collectively have about 40% and the Shi'as about 60%, roughly. So um, it, it, it gives a different perception uh, when, you, uh, when you show Alawis, for example, what kind of support he had from the Sunni group or the, from the Kurds. But don't you think that that had to be kind of normalized? Thank you. OK, please.
6: Hi, I just have a question for Dr. Zagbi. I know you have a lot of questions in the survey that ask about Iraq's people with regard to the troop patrol. Um, I was wondering if any of the questions were given context about, yes, the U.S. invaded Iraq, but it was also the same entity that imposed economic sanctions. And I'm wondering if they, if the two different situations Mm -hmm. were reconciled in that question, because it's interesting to see people in a civil society sort of way, not reflect on what it did to them before all of
1: that. One more question, and then we'll give the panel a chance to answer. Thank
7: you. Alan Keyswater with CNO Resources. My question is uh, to Mr. Zogby. You you mentioned that sectarianism, uh, the emphasis on sectarianism with the US government, was inherently undemocratic. And I think that's probably putting the bro- problem the, uh, the wrong way around. I think the emphasis was on democracy, which in Iraq is inherently sectarian uh, because of the, of the 60% that are Shia and the fact that they have not been in power uh, for millennia, I guess, centuries. Uh, so um, it, it looks like to me that that's sort of a wrong reading
2: let me start with the reconciliation. The answer is we did not ask questions uh, about that, but we did find um, uh, in the poll numbers the deep divide comes through, but we didn't specifically ask questions uh, of that sort. Um, The the numbers are, um, you you say normalized, I say uh, averaged out in the totality. Uh, And if you look in the poll uh, toward the end of the 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 booklet that you have the, the the section on Iraq that is on page 21 attitude toward Iraqi leaders the the total uh, the total is there and you will see that despite the fact that uh, Al Maliki's uh, I'm sorry that uh, Ayat Alawi's numbers are uh, not as high among Shia much higher among Kurds much higher among Sunni um, overall his favorable rating. In the 202060 20, 60 breakout that you note, his overall favorable rating is higher than Nouriel Maliki's. Overall. If you do a one-man, one-vote situation, you get pretty much the result you got in the election. And that is that uh, his list wins uh, by a slight edge over Al-Maliki over in favorability. Uh, we did not ask about sanctions. Uh, we did... Uh, um, um, I did one of my TV shows though, right at the beginning of the war, and we did ask that question and it still is a wound deeply felt uh, it was then, and I assume it is still today, although with the passage of time, there are many other wounds I think that have uh, have eclipsed it uh, on the the, the the sectarian issue and and democracy. you know the first poll we did in Iraq was October of two thousand and three uh, we found a much Less a much lower inclination towards sectarian, uh, sectarian self-identification than we do, than we do today. I, I think that, to some degree, we structured governance in Iraq around sect identification, and it certainly did appeal to leaders. I don't think that those leaders had a, a mass-based support for sectarian divide. In fact, one of the TV shows that I did early on I remember asking the kids in the audience uh, on the Iraq side um, how many of them came from mixed-sect marriages. Most of them did. This was like like Sarajevo uh, before the war. Um, People were Sunni-married Shia. Uh, People from one community married another community and with no sense of divide in that way. And one of the things that worries me about Syria is when people say, oh, it can't happen here, we're so different. It, no one ever expected it to happen in Baghdad either. No one ever expected it to happen in Beirut. No one expected it to happen in Sarajevo. It can happen anywhere. This, were, this was sect leadership in Iraq who found a system of governance that said this many Shia, this many Sunni, this many Kurd worked to their advantage, I don't think that there was a broad mass support for um, the Lebanonization of of the Iraqi political system, uh, which is why I say that our use of sectarianism undercut the push to democracy and rather played into these sort of created warlords out of uh, sectarian leaders.
1: OK, please. Microphone.
2: In the, that poll that I'm talking about in October 2003, less than one in five Iraqis saw religion as having any basis or any role to play in governance, as I recall, back then. And today you'd get some very different numbers.
3: Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Samah Alphonse from Barab uh, I'm not sure I, uh, I, uh, you mentioned or not the number of the, the percentage of the Iraqis you did the poll on. Like, what's the number? Oh, uh, the,
2: the demographics for the poll are in the back. It was 1,000 Iraqis nationwide. Uh, 1,000 Iraqis nationwide. Yes, that's what it was.
3: 1,000. Okay.
2: Uh, can I
3: have a reflection on the poll on the Arab Spring thing? Because we didn't talk about it much. That's going
1: going to be the second half of the discussion. Okay. Thank you. A A whole session about it. (laughs) Okay. Questions, please.
7: Um, Stanley Kober. Um, In his first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln said that public opinion has to be the master in a free society, that majorities, minorities can change with elections as public opinion changes, and that's how they change freely. What is being suggested here is as a result of of, uh, the invasion, the sort of sectarian identity politics strengthened, and it raises a question to me, if that was the case, and if Lincoln was correct, then all this talk about institution building may be kidding ourselves, that it was this creation of the sectarian difference that was fundamental I think you had a question
5: here. Uh, My name is Maura Brianelli. I'm with the Center for International Private Enterprise. We work with the Iraqi private sector. And one of the things that we're finding in our recent surveys is that there's quite a negative perception of the uh, political parties themselves, that instead of working for the will of the people, many politicians now are working for the will of their political party. And I'm wondering, Mr. Zogby, if you had any questions that related to that issue, um, and if you could comment on it.
1: One more. Before we open it up. OK. Shall we? You want to? NO.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Were you asking about here in the United States or, or in Iraq? <laughs> Sorry. No. I, 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 um, <laughs> the, um, uh, no, we we did not poll on uh, favorability toward parties or toward groupings, just toward leadership. and And as you see in the numbers, Every Iraqi leader has a net, a net unfavorable attitude. The highest favorable rating is Al Maliki, and that's—I'm sorry—is Alawi, and that's, I'm sorry, is, uh, um, and that's uh, at a forty percent level, respectable by American standards. I guess where where we <laughs> are, where we are today. But we didn't poll institutions. I would suppose if we polled institutions, the numbers would be would be low. But uh, but no, we didn't we didn't poll them. Um, And uh, I'm not quite sure I understood, or maybe I'll defer on the question of the 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 sectarian issue in public
4: opinion. Um, The question that was asked by the gentleman here. Well, if I understood uh, in terms of the specific question, if I understood it correctly, I think it is true that if people, what makes a democracy possible, is the fact that people change their opinion from one uh, from one. uh, the from one election to the other otherwise you have fixed majorities and minorities and then you have the uh uh the you have the uh no you have an and Arab then it system. does not work, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, that, in fact, the most important voters, you know, it's the swing voters, those people who change their mind all the time. If you are a dyed-in-the-wool Republican or Democrat, you are not doing very much for democracy in the long run because you always voted the same way. So it is true that if people voted their identity since no, I finally found you, and identity does not change, obviously, then you risk having permanent majorities and permanent minorities. You are absolutely right on that one. What I'd like to uh, the, to, to bring up, uh, though, concerning... I, I'm not totally convinced about uh, this idea that sectarianism is, is somehow the result of the way the United States handled the government formation at the beginning and so on. Sectarianism was built into the Iraqi National Congress. I mean, it was built into the nature of the parties that came together to form the, 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 the Iraqi National Congress. Just look at the names of the parties. I was also always surprised... Why after the first elections people say, Oh my god, that there has been you know, people are voting for religious parties. When you had parties in the Iraqi National Congress with names like the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, and they say, you know, what did you think that was essentially? As a, but, all the political parties that existed before the U.S. invasion were based, on, were based on sectarian divide. I mean, and this is one of the problems that we are seeing in country after country. That they, may
2: have been one of the reasons why it was a problem for us to have seen Iraq through the lens of the Iraq National Congress at all and had them as the people who directed traffic for us early on. I mean, we learned... How many of them, have we learned, have been discredited since uh, since, we, we, uh, since this war has gone sour? But I, I think early on we did that, which is why I worry about the same situation in other countries as they're developing, that when you rely on these exile groups, you begin to develop a very different perspective of how the country operates or what the future of the country should look like.
4: True, but there has never been, and this is the last point I'll make. I think let's keep in mind that there has never been a transitional situation where elections were won by. Uh, parties that were formed after the transition started. That it's invariably the parties that were there before. It's the old liberation movements, quote unquote, that end up uh, by prevailing. And that it's, you know, and that is very, that's very problematic because very often these, these parties or these movements are not what one would like to see in a democracy. But unfortunately, that, that uh, seems to be the case. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not a fan of the U.S. invasion. I'm not a fan of the way the U.S. Hand- the situation you know, in the early period, but I think that that's one, that this problem of sectarianism was built into mm-hmm. and not something that U.S. did.
3: Skip? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to actually bring up something new, if I might, just another look at the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq, because I think, again, I, I thought your, your comments were wise for us all to remember, Jim, the American public and its disengagement from the issue. I, I, I would mark it from the day that the president announced his withdrawal, and that seemed to solve everybody's problem. Not, of course, everybody, but large. But the one thing that also the American public, and I'm, I'm afraid the US government doesn't think very deeply about it either, is what I want to call the balance of power in the region. Uh, and, this, and how the withdrawal of the United States, how the entry of the United States into Iraq and the destruction of Iraq as a power center if not real terms, at least in the imagined terms of the region, you know this region is still struggling with who 's in charge and how people are going to be dealt with and balanced the Iranian factor we all know about with the saudi Iranian competition, the small gulf states iraq isn 't there, the bulwark to Iran in the same way it was um, and, and and you could take it on into the levant and, and on the role of of egypt i mean I think One has to understand that America's withdrawal and repositioning of itself is seen by the people in the region as an unsettling, new sort of ongoing development in this decision about who's going to be in charge and what's going to happen to them all. And I don't think we should forget that. And I don't think many people in Washington calculated that when we went into Iraq and and how we've dealt with things since then. And if you look at the poll question about who benefited from the war. The, the differences in
2: opinion are fascinating. Yes. Although, almost across the board, everyone thinks that America benefited, except for Americans. Yes. 40% of Americans, on the other hand, think no one benefited. Again, this total ambivalence, the sense that I, I, we don't know what happened, and we almost want to wash our hands. It's over, forget it, be done with it. The, the second uh, beneficiary of the war, almost across the board, is Israel, and then Iran. Um, only the American people say uh, number two uh, that uh, the Iraqi people benefited. The Iraqi people don't think the Iraqi no, people benefited, but the American people do. And we, our two top, uh, we said that the uh, uh, no one benefited, and the Iraqi people benefited. Um, after that, we're completely out of sync with the rest of the world.
1: Any more questions on the issue? Please.
6: I have two brief questions. Was there any work done to disaggregate uh, the uh, American military effort from the American civilian effort in, uh, in in terms of feelings in Iraq? And the other one was: was there any data to show um, the, let's say, the perceived importance of military influence, or let's say, American influence in Iraqi politics over time? I'm sorry if that's a little bit complicated. I'm asking the question though, because having worked there mm-hmm. um, as an American, we felt more and more powerless over time to, you know, materially affect uh, political outcomes in Iraq, mm-hmm. and that happened mm-hmm. fast. Uh, mm-hmm. That that seemed to drop off a cliff after not very much time. Um, and um, and as to the first question, um, there was, you know, a concerted effort in '09 and 2010 to. Put a civilian face on yeah. on activities over there, and I'm wondering if that that showed up in any sort of perception. If you look at the, the the poll, we didn't disaggregate
2: as you as you ask looking backward, but we did looking forward, asking what future role people saw for the United States. And um, about a third see the U.S. as simply being a source of interference, uh, foreign interference, but. Fifteen percent want a special alliance. Fourteen percent see the U.S. playing a security role. Twelve percent as an investor in development, etc. There is this same kind of uh, the the the, the um, sort of conflicted nature. On the one hand, get out. On the other hand, we're afraid about what happens when you leave. And on the other hand, you still have a role to play in these in these different ways. So um, I, I, I think um, looking forward. Uh, the Iraqis aren't ready for us to wash our hands of the country completely at all.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, this concludes the uh, first half of uh, our workshop. Um, I want to thank Jim, Marina, and Skip for uh, very interesting and perceptive remarks about uh, uh, the Iraqi issue. In the second panel, we will talk about the region, uh, the polls that were conducted not just in Iraq but in six Arab countries. and cover the issue of uh, uh, political change and governance uh, more broadly. So maybe we can take a 10-minute break for coffee and then reconvene uh, for the second session. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you, you but that's,
4: a, that's a building, not an institution. <laughs> the
1: comments in general. To be tied to the if, if you feel like it, only if you feel like it. Right. Like, I don't want to put any pressure on.
2: It's
3: It's really up to you.
2: i
1: You don't feel comfortable.
3: It's an unclear. I certainly don't feel comfortable. That's why not replacing <the> a <Yeah>, lawyer. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: And I, I think I'll bow out if it's okay. Sure, sure, sure. No problems. No problems. Uh, I
3: was really taken, though. i the going say, i the sound of the
1: is. I know. I'm going to comment on this actually. Keep Jordan out. <laughs> keep <Thank> it. <you, buddy. laughs> It's good. to Okay.
7: Okay. Okay. Thank you
5: Yeah. Yeah.
3: I, I see. I've uh, i the I yeah. mm-hmm. I've met him. I like him. I like him. He's a good man,
5: yeah. And it was a little I just I don't think I can quite do it uh, yeah. The chief of
2: staff, the yes. on yes. Yeah, He was on my show, uh, show. Uh,
5: this
3: She's like... She's got a whole...
6: I Egypt, is a my life to help you
5: is possible to
3: <laughs> okay.
6: you. No. As you can see, I'm going to
4: لا تخش على Same as before? Yeah. Yeah. Might. might as well. At least we have the same glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you want to yeah, change exactly. That's your water glass, right? Exactly. This oh, oh, this was... Thank you. <laughs> <then it's> just... <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Was setting
1: up Yes, so in this it yes actually, yes. It, uh, they did it this morning, which was good. Yeah. But we we also did get more people, a lot more uh, about it. So in the end, it worked out fine.
5: Yeah,
1: also. yeah, okay. Exactly. Well, we got we, we got two C span. Uh, yeah, you know, so. events. Not bad. This is Christmas, that's why, that's the advantage of <laughs> getting Christmas. <laughs> not.
6: let them come in?
1: Or, uh, yes, maybe we should, yes, yes. Not that anybody is watching during Christmas. Probably doing oh. the shopping, not... <laughs> I, no,
4: I think it's coffee. <laughs> I had a couple of uh, emails from journalists who wanted comments and so on over the weekend. I did open my email over the weekend. I had another thing to prepare for Christmas. <laughs> That Iraq has stabilized enough in terms of the population moving around because of the conflict no. to get a good number, no, to get a reliable sample. So what we have to do is to send teams into different areas. We don't have the same team for every the past years. mean, that's a bit of a challenge in a situation like that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I told you that you, you you're your Marwan's paper was a bit cryptic, I mean, <laughs> no, not Marwan's paper. I mean, I will, I will, I will,
1: because I, mean, I thought you'd already talked, so we I didn't... We talked
4: about it, but I, I thought maybe you wanted to read the paper. <laughs> no, I, I, I trust Nathan's work. If yeah. you have
1: seen yeah. it, it's, it's fine. It's... Uh, I will read it today, but not yet. But I will read it today. I
4: wish I had the three meetings <laughs> But there is only one of them. No. <laughs> oh. <clears throat>
7: I'm going <laughs> to take a look at I think it was the tricky thing that came in the place that is smaller than
6: So, it's going
1: you <laughs> let me see <clears throat>
3: MR. Do
1: you want yeah, well, About six, seven people, okay. they're, they're coming.
4: they They're coming. We'll wait a maybe second. Yeah. Right?
1: Oh, because of the TV, maybe we better wait till they come. We'll wait a minute yeah, or so. MR. We'll, yeah. we wait a minute. <laughs>
4: Okay, well, welcome again uh, to this second session. I don't think I need to uh, make introductions because we are exactly the same people as we were before, minus one. We were very proud of having brought, of having a new speaker, somebody who is not, you know, is not one of the Washington uh, usual suspects. And then, unfortunately, he got stranded where uh, where he was not supposed to be. So it's... uh, uh, you have to put up with us again. Uh, we'll do the same thing as before we'll get uh, the results of the polls and then we'll uh, Marwan will comment and then we'll open t- uh, to the public Jim.
2: Thank you uh, for staying uh, staying around. Uh, it was nine months into the Arab Spring that we uh, that we conducted this poll. It was the same uh, poll that included the questions on Iraq, uh, included issues on uh, democracy, on political change, on satisfaction, uh, degree of satisfaction of the way things are taking place in their countries. Uh, we, we polled in seven Arab countries uh, and Iran, uh, and what we found is what we call an Arab Spring effect that had occurred. Reform and rights issues were now perceived as being political priorities in most countries. Uh, The results varied from country to country, and they provided an important look into the unique set of concerns in each. Uh, We've conducted similar polls since 2001, and it was the differences that we discerned between this poll in 2011 and the ones in 2009 and before that were most intriguing. For example, I have here a, a chart that presents the results in rank order in each of the countries that we polled. There were eight overall countries. The countries that we had polled previously in um, 2009 have the rank order of the issue after, um, for example, in Egypt, employment is now number one. It was number two uh, top priority in 2009. But you can see that employment is the number one issue across the board. Um, every place but the UAE, and we can describe, uh, we can discuss why um, uh, a bit later. It was number four uh, in 2009. Uh, employment is the number one concern. Um, and up till 2009, uh, what we'd find is that bread and butter issues, uh, employment, uh, health care, em- uh, education, etc. they were always in the, in the top ranking. There were unique issues of concern in every country. In Egypt, corruption and nepotism was always a big issue. It was the same in in Lebanon. Terrorism in some countries was an issue. Israel and Palestine was a big issue in Jordan. Obviously, it's a domestic concern. It's also an issue of of great importance in UAE and in in Saudi Arabia. Um, What's striking is when you go to 2011, in the countries that we had polled uh, before and polled again, the issues of political rights, political reform, and civil rights, uh, corruption issues, are now in the top tier in most of the countries. Um, and as you can see, in, in some more so than others, in Lebanon, for example, five of the top four issues include ending corruption, political reform, civil rights, and democracy. In UAE, Uh, The top two issues are now civil rights and political debate. In Saudi Arabia, number three is ending corruption. Number four is democracy. Number five is civil rights, Um, et et cetera. The one that's unique in this regard is, um, is Egypt. Nothing changed. The top four issues in 2009 are still the top four issues now. And what that says to me is something interesting all by itself. The people who led the revolt in Egypt, the youth, were a democracy movement. But the mass base in Egypt are poor, hungry, jobless, need government services, and find that corruption and nepotism has harmed their ability to move forward. There's a disconnect, I think, between the revolt and between the mass base. And we're seeing that play out now in the election and in the aftermath of the election. But Egypt was the one place where the top four issues before are still the top four issues now. Uh, Iran is—I guess you could call it a political basket case. Uh, employment is number one, but then democracy, terrorism, women's rights, political. Du- it's Tunisia. Uh, no, that's Iran right now. Oh, Tunisia. Yep. That is not. No, no,
1: no. That's that's, that's Iran, but it says it's Tunisia. I I think it's Iran.
2: Uh, Let me see. Uh, No, actually, it's not. Women's rights only in Tunisia were women's rights number four. Only in Tunisia. And UAE was another one where, where women's rights were high. Let me go back, if I can, to here where you can see the Iran numbers. Employment is number one, then democracy, civil rights, political reform, ending corruption, political debate, women's rights, number seven. So the top seven issues, six of them, are democracy-related in Iran. Um, and it was the only country where the, the the democracy reform and rights issues literally dominated everything across the board. Um, you're absolutely right that the um, uh, the issues there—that was Tunisia—and um, in Tunisia, it is employment, democracy, terrorism, and women's rights. Um, and women's rights, interesting in Tunisia, in that for those who feared what uh, an anahda, the culture of Tunisia is set, and it's set by the 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 decades ago, probably by the Bourguiba period, uh, where where women's rights are a part of the culture of the country. It's something that people are concerned about and and therefore want to protect across the board. The final question we asked was, is your country on the right track? Uh, We asked another question about uh, whether the pace of change. But what you're seeing is that in most of the countries, in particular in Saudi Arabia and UAE, which again, warrant uh, separate discussion, people think things are just fine. Political debate and reform issues have broken into the top tier, but people are politically satisfied. And they're politically satisfied because life is good. They have a job. They have government services. They have access to governance. Um, they're, they feel comfortable about the present, and they feel secure in the future. And therefore, government's on the right track. Um, in Egypt, Jordan, uh, the, the numbers are pretty good. The most worrisome, obviously, is Lebanon. We're only 25%. But Lebanon's numbers are always very low, always very low. Um, And uh, and Iraq and Iran are also quite low in this regard. The Tunisia numbers are interesting, 54%, because 40% of Tunisians were not sure, which is itself interesting. There's a kind of a... Now, understand that the poll was done in September, which is the month... During which Tunisia was preparing for its election, which explains maybe a, a lot of uh, of the intensity or the, the 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 concern. When we did the other poll about Iraq, uh, the Tunisian numbers were way off because it was probably the last thing on earth Tunisians wanted to think about, with their elections being uh, within within weeks uh, from from when the poll was done. So the bottom line here is that um, I think that. Uh, uh, the, the Arab world is on the cusp of change. Um, we're seeing not Iraq, but the Arab Spring having elevated issues of democracy and rights into the, into the political mainstream. People still want jobs. They still want to raise a family. They still want to have the ability to provide for their future. But they also now are beginning to talk about rights and, and reform issues. The question is how governments respond to this new vocabulary and this new discourse is going to determine the future of the region in the years to come. And I'll now await your response.
1: Okay, uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, I found this uh, to be a very interesting uh, uh, set of uh, polls. Uh, in my days in government, I also conducted uh, a lot of polls in Jordan to gauge the public mood, and I. I think they uh, go very well, Jim, with your findings. Uh, the, the first uh, uh, comment I want to make is that, as we have seen from these polls, Arabs are no different than anybody else. Their number one issue is employment. They want to be employed. Uh, this is a region that is very young. 70% of uh, the population is under 30 years of age. This is the number one issue on everybody's mind. So uh, from that aspect, I was not surprised at all to see uh, uh, the results of this poll. What I want to caution uh, uh, about, uh, uh, however, is not to read into this that because employment is the number one issue on everybody's mind, that political reform is either not important or can wait. That would be drawing the wrong conclusion. And I say this because of two things. One, it is clear, as uh, the poll itself suggests, that political reform issues have been uh, uh, indeed elevated in most of the, uh, in all of the countries that were uh, polled, including in my own. But the other conclusion I want to uh, uh, make is that even economic issues like employment, Uh, are going to need economic reform that can no longer be done in isolation of political reform. In other words, economic reform in the region has been tried. And in fact, countries such as Egypt or Tunisia or Jordan have done a lot of economic liberalization and privatization and opening up of their systems. What they have failed to do is that they have not done so within the context of a political reform process that developed in parallel a system of checks and balances so that abuses were checked. And as a result of that, people uh, you know, uh, don't look nicely today at economic reform issues. So if employment is the uh, uh, number one issue for people, and it is according to the polls, the way to address employment cannot be done without political reform. In other words, economic reform measures alone, which have been tried in the past, cannot work if they are not done in parallel with a reform process, political reform process. The other comment I want to make is on corruption. Corruption actually is today uh, uh, starting to serve as a unifying factor among the different groups in the countries. Uh, you look at Lebanon, you look at Iraq, you look even at Jordan, where you, you might have diverse ethnic groups or religious groups or, that do not agree on everything and have different uh, needs and, 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 and different demands from the system. All of them agree on corruption. All of them. And and so this is an issue that if you want to see it in a positive way, uh, what's positive about it is that it is serving to bring people together in ways that other issues uh, have not uh, uh, done so uh, in the past. I'm uh, somewhat struck, somewhat not, by the uh, what we have seen on Israel-Palestine. Uh, because once again, uh, even in Jordan, when I used to conduct polls, it consistently, uh, employment was the number one issue and Israel-Palestine was the number two issue, consistently. Um, uh, but what it what it shows is that right now you know in this snapshot in time people's focus is on you know reform issues whether they are economic or political that does not mean in my view that people don't care about the israel palestine issue even if it has dropped in priority at this time because of these concerns and it also does not mean that in my view, that people should read into this that you know, just because the Arab uprisings are on reform issues, that the Israel-Palestine issue ceased to be of importance uh, to uh, the public in the Arab world. Just look at what happened in Egypt with the storming of the Israeli embassy, and you would understand the strength of the feelings that people have about this issue within the proper context. And in my view, uh, uh, you know, uh, as we, as Arab governments uh, and countries make the transition to democracy, Arab regimes are going to have to be more responsive to their publics. And guess what, when the president of Egypt is elected, whether it is Amar Musa or Abdul Munam, Abul Fatouh or any other person, guess what position they are going to take, you know, on Israel after they are elected. Uh, uh, to say that they will not uh, be bothered or concerned with this issue, I think, would be to misread the situation. But it's also interesting to see where Israel-Palestine is on the priority list of Iranians, dead last. Dead last. Whereas political issues, as as, uh, Jim said, is at the top. It shows you the disconnect, I think, that exists today between the public and their government in Iran on both issues, on political reform issues and on, uh, and on the Arab-Israeli uh, uh, conflict. It's interesting to uh, see uh, uh, people who are satisfied, as Jim also said, with their uh, change, with their pace of change versus people who are not. The one country that is doing from probably uh, the view of the majority, if not all of us, The one country that is doing best uh, uh, in the transition, Tunisia, is among the countries where people are least satisfied about the pace of change. That to me actually is positive. It just shows you that people were so uh, fed up with the uh, uh, old system that they're hungry for change. Uh, 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 As opposed to, say, uh, the Saudis who... You know, we would agree that they're in need of uh, a political reform process, but their situation, uh, uh, from their point of view, uh, is more or less uh, okay. Uh, and and, and that's, that's, that's very interesting to look at the, the Tunisian figures versus the Jordanian, the Jordanian figures or the, uh, or the uh, Saudi ones. Um, Jim, you did not talk about the youth and uh, the social media. I don't know if you want to uh, mm. mention that. Uh, but if we don't, if you don't, I would like to say something about. That. Sure, sure. sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, uh, because there is also a section in the polls about social media, and and uh, to me, I think a number of very important uh, uh, results come out. First, that the. Uh, Notion that these uprisings were the result uh, of, uh, uh, of social media uh, is probably romantic and exaggerated in this country. That's not to say that uh, they did not play, uh, social media did not play a role. It certainly did. And as the poll shows, that the uh, internet penetration rates in most Arab countries, went dramatically up, particularly in, say, Egypt, in the last two or three years. But to deduce from that, in a region where still uh, Internet penetration rates have not crossed 30 or 40 percent in many countries, to deduce from that that the Internet was the only or even the major uh, part, I think, is, is a simplification. The poll does show that uh, traditional media still plays an important role in the Arab world. Satellite dishes play a very important, networks play a very important role, and of course the mobile phone, which is available to everybody, also and text messages uh, uh, play a very important role. In fact, you know, coming from Jordan four years ago, here I, I noticed how how people use text messaging there much more than they use it in this country. I think it's a recent phenomenon in this country to use text messaging compared to the, uh, to the Middle East. But what I, I want to say about youth groups is, uh, because I don't also want to belittle their importance, I think this is a rising phenomenon in the Arab world, and it's a very encouraging phenomenon in the Arab world. As we have seen in Egypt, in Tunisia, in, in Jordan and elsewhere, we are witnessing the growth uh, Of youth groups who uh, uh, more or less are characterized by the same uh, traits. They are internet savvy, therefore, you know, somewhat elitist. They are not afraid uh, to voice their views uh, uh, as opposed to their parents. Uh, uh, I, I love what Lisa Anderson said about the youth in Egypt, and I keep repeating it. This is a revolution, she said, on behalf of their parents, not in opposition to their parents. Mm -hmm. And it's very true. Um, So they're not afraid. They're very politically aware. uh, But they lack political organization. And they lack political organization because, you know, they and everybody else in their countries do not have a culture of civil society, do not have a culture of strong political parties, etc. And until that culture one emerges, and until they understand, as we have seen in Egypt, that it's not just important to start a revolution, but what is more important is to institutionalize it, until they understand that the only way you can do this is to not just go to the street, but to organize, politically organize, uh, uh, we're not going to start to see a diverse and pluralist, pluralistic society in the Arab world. But I think they will. And I think the future is with them, given that 70% of the population is under 30 years of age. So that gives me hope, because these people also are cutting across ethnic lines. We're seeing it in Lebanon, where there is still a small but but growing uh, movement for uh, you know, uh, people to cut across religious lines. We're seeing it in Jordan, where people are cutting across East Jordanian Palestinian lines. Uh, we're seeing in, it in Egypt, where people are cutting across Muslim cop lines, etc. and I think that uh, 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 it's a movement that can only uh, positively, grow, positively grow in the future and I 'll stop at that.
2: Let me just react to two, three points um, in, uh, in, in agreement largely. Um, the first on corruption and nepotism. We asked them together. Um, it, it is an enormous inhibitor to change. And it is one deeply felt in many of the countries. And in this current poll, it is in the top tier in four of the seven countries. And so you're, you're right. I mean, it, it was a, it's a major and one of the great delegitimizers, I think, in Tunisia and in Egypt of the, uh, of the regimes that were, were overthrown. On Israel, Palestine, and Iran, I I think that's also very interesting. It's not to say that there's not an Iranian sentiment, but I think that it's intriguing that I don't think when the leadership uses it that it's using it for its own people. It's actually recognizing the point you made that across the water, it's a major issue in the Gulf uh, and in Jordan. And I've never believed that Israel was the target of Iran, I believe that it is the tool used by Iran to appeal to to Arab public opinion, uh, which is what their ultimate goal is: is is hegemony in 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 the Gulf region. And on the social media issue um, and youth, one of the things that I, I've 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 learned in this is that in areas where you expect there to be differences in attitudes between young people and older people. That doesn't ever seem to be the case in, in great numbers. There are gender differences, to be sure. I mean, women, for example, in most countries will support women's rights much higher than men, except in Saudi Arabia, where you know, in some polls, men actually are more supportive than women. Um, but, um, but it's behavior among youth that's different. And in this instance in particular, uh, on use of internet and on where people get information, um, Older people tending to get information from more traditional media sources. Younger people tending to get information from uh, from Facebook and uh, um, and internet sites as opposed to uh, the the way their their older peers do. So behavior difference, attitudes not that much difference.
4: Okay, before I open it, I'll. Take advantage of the prerogative of the chair, both to ask a question but also to make one comment. And really, really, this is a footnote uh, that uh, to what Marwan said about uh, the fact that. You know, the social media are not the cause, that they play their role, but they're not a cause. And every uprising or revolution that I'm aware of was attributed to the use of the latest technology. You remember Iran and the, cassette, the cassettes that Khomeini was smuggling into the country? The, uh, the uprising of 1848 in Europe were attributed to the influence of the, the newfangled invention called the daily newspaper. Same thing. It would not have been possible without the daily newspaper. The one for which I have not found a technological explanation is the Russian Revolution. Maybe there is one I cannot say I have researched it, but I have never stumbled across an explanation for that. So I think, you know, th- th- perhaps the bottom line is that people use whatever is available to get the, to get the, message, to get the message across. The question, though, is concerning the... Uh, um, the result, the degree of satisfaction which was expressed by people in, uh, in uh, the, the, the Emirates and in uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Now, concerning the Emirates, did you poll across the board, or these were just uh, Emiratis that were polled? We, we, we poll,
2: when we poll in the Emirates, we've polled three different ways. We've polled everybody in the country, we've polled Arabs in the Emirates, and we've polled Emiratis. Um, when we were polling in the, the, the use of social media, we polled Arabs in the Emirates. Okay. When we polled on uh, the, the Iraq attitudes, we polled Arabs in the Emirates. When we polled on this part, we polled just Emiratis. Okay. Or, or we actually polled everybody, but we segmented out Emiratis from the, the larger public. So I think you're right. If we had polled everyone, the satisfaction levels would have been very different. But when you talk about just Emiratis, period, satisfaction
4: is high. And that is not surprising. But the other part of the question was, what is less understandable to me? Because uh, is why the Saudis express such a degree of satisfaction. Because while it is true that I don't think there are many unemployed Emiratis in the the country, just nothing else because there are so few of them to begin with, uh, but there is a very high level of unemployment in Saudi Arabia. There is a considerable- I've polled in uh, Saudi
2: Arabia a massive poll we actually did for McKinsey. Nice. Um, and I, I think that the reports of Saudi unemployment are misleading. Um, in that, for example, we'll we'll get a 30-something percent unemployed, but many of them are students- and many of them are... Look, if if after you've looked at the demographics and done the whole breakout, you find that the person who is unemployed lives in a household of 10 people, four of whom are working, and he, this person who says he's unemployed, also reports an income, a monthly income, of some significant number of... of, uh, uh, rials every month. Um, then I question whether or not there's a, you know, there, there's a, a, th- that's the same as someone who's unemployed living in a household, like in Bahrain, on the other hand. Someone in Bahrain who's unemployed, by and large, lives in a household of three or four people, only one of whom is employed, um, and reports no monthly income. So the Saudi who is reporting income, either income from parents or income from property or income from stock market or income from some other source uh, and is in a household of many people, at least three or four of whom are working, that's a very different category. So the number of real unemployed who are also economically needy is much less than what you'd expect it to be if you just look at the unemployment number, which is not to say there's not need in the country. It's just that... the need is such that it doesn't affect the satisfaction level to the degree that it would, for example, in Bahrain, where the numbers were very bad, um, both on satisfaction and also on on employment and needs.
4: Thank you very much. Okay, let's open the... Thank you all so much. Uh,
5: My name is Sibel Cochran. I'm with USAID and my question is based on something that Jim said, but for all of you. Um, Jim, you pointed out that uh, in Tunisia, women's rights is such a concern because of its cultural history. It, it, you said it's just part of the environment. However, um, my question is about Iraq, that for several decades, women have actually held a prominent place in government and political decision-making, well-educated, um, until basically the U.S. invaded. And so I'm wondering why such the plummet in women's status when actually historically it's been quite good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me take
4: another, uh, another question here.
3: Alexander Mubarak from GQR Research. No relation. Um, Quick question to you, James. You said that the um, behavior differed between the older population and the younger population, and except for opinion was the same, and I'm wondering if that's the same for rural and urban areas as well.
4: Hmm. Okay, I'll I'll just take these two and then come back.
2: Okay, um... The rural-urban, we mostly poll in urban because it's all face-to-face, and it's very difficult in a country like Iraq or a country like uh, uh, like Iran to go throughout the entire country and create a reasonable sample. So we focus on urban, and we in- we include about – Depending on the country, depending upon the you know between eighty percent to sixty percent of the population, because these are these are also very concentrated urban areas, so i don 't actually have rural numbers to speak of we 've done for example that that uh, poll that we did uh, that I mentioned uh, on the middle class We did they were very large samples of three thousand in some instances, and we did go beyond into the into the outlying uh, regions, but in this one we we, we, we did not. So I, I I can't really give you a number there, and the question you asked was about women in Iraq. Um, it the, the ranking was low. I think uh, you know without being disrespectful of women's rights, I think bigger fish to fry in the you know other other issues trumped, uh, and tr- for women too. This is not a question of women in Iraq. You know, sort of um, saying it was a a very profound need. I, I think in situations of uh, we saw that here, America. I remember during the women's movement, or the early years of the women's movement, when it sort of overlapped with the you know, a very intense mobilization on the civil rights movement. Um, white women saying to black women, why aren't you taking the lead on this? There were some black women who did, but in, in, for the main, in the African American community, the issue of political rights and civil rights and national rights trumped. And I think in Iraq, that's what you're seeing, where the turmoil is what it is. Um, and where simply making, you know, keeping your, yourself safe during the day and, and finding a way to sustain your, your, your life and the fear of, of, you know, getting blown up and, you know, whatever. I mean, those are the issues that ultimately end up grabbing. Um, and so uh, as to an overall assessment, have women's rights improved or not improved? That's one question. But where does it rank in terms of a political priority? pretty down the, down the scale. And look at in Iraq, Israel, Palestine. Does that mean that Iraqis don't care about Palestine? We've polled in Iraq before on Palestine. It is a big issue. But it is not a big issue. Speaking of fish to fry, it is not a big issue now when Iraq is facing a fight for its very survival, given the internal problems that it's facing as it moves forward. Same in Tunisia, where on the cusp of an election with all the things that are going on, does that mean Tunisians, with all the history they have of the PLO having been headquartered there and in previous polls finding a very deep attachment with the issue of Palestine, does that mean Tunisians don't care? No. It just means right now, in September of this year, when they were facing a national election in their country – uh, that would determine the future of, of, uh, of, of, you know, of, of what kind of country Tunisia was going to be, that was not the priority issue. Uh, in fact, there, women and the, the role that women would play, something that, they, that many Tunisians wanted to make sure, was secure. That was a far more important issue. But in Jordan... Um, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and UAE, right up there on top. The one place I thought that was interesting was in Lebanon, where it had always been an important issue. But interestingly, in Lebanon, Israel-Palestine's not the issue. It's Israel that's the issue. Because Lebanon has its own axe to grind, and that is Israel's behavior in Lebanon. So we didn't ask it that way. We asked it about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and that is something in Lebanon that's secondary to if we'd asked about Israel's behavior, which is something very different.
1: I just want to add uh, uh, something on women's rights, Jim. Um, I think part of the problem uh, extends beyond Iraq. We, we, unfortunately, and I say this as an Arab, I think the issue of women's rights is not seen by many Arabs as uh, one of the needed importance, uh, maybe with the exception of few countries like Tunisia and Lebanon. But I think, in general, if you ask people for political reform, you know, the issue of women's rights does not come out as an important issue, uh, and and the and the reason is both cultural and legal. Uh, culturally, I think uh, 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 women are are not seen as equal, uh, uh, sadly, and legally they're not seen as equal. And uh, you know, you'd be surprised to to find out that whereas issues pertaining to culture take time, something can be done about legal discrimination and is not being done. So that in most Arab countries, if not in all Arab countries, there is legal discrimination. And I'm not talking about inheritance laws, Sharia laws. I'm talking about everything. Social security, uh, 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 health benefits, uh, pension, uh, everything. There is a difference when it comes to how you treat women than how you treat men, and a difference that, sadly, is more or less accepted by the vast majority of men in the Arab world. Look
2: at, look at the UAE numbers on women, six, and it was fourth among women and seventh among men. Um, next to the next-door neighbor, Saudi Arabia, very different. But the UAE numbers were also, I thought, interesting in, the, in that regard. But you're absolutely right. It is not an issue that's penetrated.
4: Thank you. Okay, let's, you had your hand up here, yeah. yes. Uh,
5: Molly Williamson, uh, American Academy of Diplomacy. Uh, first, my compliments to the sustained excellence of Zogby Polls. Um, my question- I, I would
2: say, I thank you. My brother thanks you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh,
5: my question is, what happens if nothing happens? Uh, Across the board, the importance of employment, as Marwan uh, emphasized, uh, 70% of these populations under the age of 30, uh, 50 million new entrants into the labor force expected over the next 10 years. That's 5 million new jobs every year just to sustain today's unemployment rate. Um, You know, if the United States knew how to do it, we'd do it, but we don't. And it would appear that nobody else does either. So what happens if not only is there not, and not seen to be, address of transparency, accountability, judicial uh, uh, independence and uh, and implementation, but most uh, fundamentally uh, and the economic well-being, the employment prospects for being able to educate one's young Um, in not being addressed, what's going to
7: happen? I just wanted to make a
5: comment on the women
7: in Iraq in particular because uh, in the north, for instance, where it was quiet and not so much bombing and violence and so on, Jim, uh, there's actually uh, women's rights uh, are way at the bottom and uh, discrimination against women is way up. I mean, even worse than the central authority. So it is not really a, the issue of uh, violence, I'm sure, and, and the bigger fish to fry is an issue. But there's also an absence of uh, legislation. You actually have a mechanism where women's rights are protected and so on. So until this very day, one of the highest probably per capita uh, you know, honor killings and so on was in Kurdistan. Thank you.
2: Okay. Let me uh, let me just take the issue of the the, the employment question that Molly um, Williamson raises. Um, we do other polls uh, for the Oliver Wyman Group uh, on business confidence, and a major issue we've focused on is the youth bulge and government reform, um, making possible growth in in the in the economy, and. Um, I, I, because the situation is not sustainable the the employers of first resort not last resort in 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 the region are governments um and as a result of that uh in Saudi Arabia in particular um you ask a college graduate when he's you know the right at the point of graduation what his goal is it's to get a government job uh the benefits are better the pay is better uh security is better and, um, and they're available. Uh, are steps being taken to encourage the private sector or to make space for the private sector to grow and play its role? Because the question is, this is not sustainable in the long haul. You mentioned the number of jobs. The number that have to be created in Saudi Arabia alone um, are greater than the number that have been created in the previous 10 that have been done by the government. And here they have to be done by the private sector because while oil income is up, It is not up sufficiently enough to say it could be a never-ending expansion of government-created jobs to absorb these new young people coming into the market. I think everyone knows it. The efforts at Saudiization, Emiratization, whatever it's called from country to country, have not succeeded in part because the private sector itself hasn't stepped up. and and moved into whatever space has been created. I mean, one of the things that uh, was done in Saudi Arabia was King Abdullah created his own stimulus package to promote private investment. Some happened. But when we poll business elites, and we say, if given the choice between hiring an expat worker at less pay or a national worker at more pay, um, if they have the same skills, he'll go with the with the cheaper uh, thing, which is one of the reasons why labor reform becomes an issue is because um, government more than the private sector sees the need to create more opportunity for the the for the nationals uh, the, the, that are coming into the market they're just not they're just not finding a way to absorb them. So I agree with you. It is a huge problem as the, as the region moves forward. It's one that has to be addressed. It has not yet exploded. I think Egypt is the one place where we, we see, I, I think, a real role of this youth bulge in uh, uh, somebody who describes it as the wait time uh, for between college graduate and first job um, has grown so long. Um, in Gaza, it is a nightmare. Eighty percent of young people have not had a job, no prospect of a job. These are situations that are not only not sustainable but they're absolutely horrific
1: If I can add also Jim <coughs> governments uh, arab governments employ or or economic strategies employment strategies in the past have centered around privatizing state uh, run enterprises and uh, trying to attract foreign investment to be able to uh, you know create jobs well that took care maybe of the big companies but it didn't take care of the smes and you know in this country for example small and medium enterprises employ 70% of the popula- of the workforce in a country like Jordan, they employ thirty percent of the workforce it 's a huge, huge gap, uh, and no there have been no uh, policies aimed at encouraging sMEs neither in Jordan nor in most Arab countries so this is one thing that you need to do. you cannot keep employing. People through government, you know, 50%, almost 50% of the workforce in Jordan is government employees. I mean, this is, you talk about killing productivity, that's a sure way to do it. Uh, and you're not going to create 50 million new jobs if you don't uh, look at productivity, which is, which is my second point about our, you know, education uh, policies. Educational policies so far are not geared to encourage productivity, are not geared to encourage, encourage creativity, critical thinking, are not giving people the skills that they need uh, uh, to enter the, 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 the market, the, the you know, the, the, the workforce. Uh, they are geared uh, to basically... Uh, uh, if I can be candid, employ people to be no more than government bureaucrats able to <laughs> push the pencil here and there. Seriously, I mean, you're not going, and 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 governments have not spent money and resources on education in the uh, in the needed way. They have spent some money but not on the, on the right ways. I mean, university education, Mali, you've been in Jordan. University in education in Jordan in the 70s was 10 times better than today. Even though today we have 35, you know, public and private universities, we had two or three in the 70s, but the quality of education then was much better than today because not enough attention is given to this aspect of the problem.
4: Okay. Yes.
0: (coughs) Hossein Ibn Yusef, International Petroleum Enterprises. Um, On the connectivity that you both talked about, and uh, you warned not to read uh, too much into it, and you mentioned the uh, disconnect between the internet savvy and the base, uh, particularly in Egypt. And what we have done in in the region, we found out that uh, Maybe Marwan hasn't gone far enough. Uh, when you look at Yemen or Syria or, or Libya, the, uh, the percentage uh, is, is awfully low from 1.5% one, one to like 4% in, in, in connectivity and access to Facebook and so on, and yet we've seen more problems there. On the other end, we've seen uh, UAE and Qatar with more than 40% penetration, and it's exactly the opposite. So we do, in fact, read too much into it. Uh, the other uh, point on Iran and the changes, I'm really not sure how much of it is the impact of the Arab revolt. Uh, since the 2009 election in Iran, things have been quite different from what it was prior to that. So uh, I'm, I'm really not sure to, to what percentage of that move, if there was any movement, what percentage is, is due to the mm. Arab revolt. But my question is actually on the employment side, which is common for all of them. Tunisia in particular had a very low unemployment problem. I think it was like three and a half percent, very low, and yet we saw the problem there. So, uh, isn't it, aren't we trying to politicize the, the situation in majority of the countries there when the problem, uh, with the exception of maybe Tunisia, uh, when the problem is, as as it was said, was uh, employment, uh, uh, mostly economic problems, and the result of the show, the uh, the poll basically shows that employment is number one, which is a good portion of uh, you know the uh, the economic problems. Thank you.
4: Okay.
2: Uh, let me let me work on the <coughs> connectivity issue and. Um, uh, I, I just quickly on Iran I never made the point that there is a, 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 <coughs> that these numbers in and of themselves are deterministic uh, uh as to what the causes of a revolution are I I, I would I, I, you know I don't know I'm not gonna to point to a particular cause in, in Tunisia. I, I think, you know, everything from the, the corruption of the regime, its delegitimacy, uh, et cetera, I mean had has a lot to do with uh, with what was going on there. In Iran, I, I'm not arguing that that the Arab Spring produces this change in priorities in Iran. Um it does in the other Arab countries, I think to be sure. But I do, in the introduction that I write to this section, I make the point that um, this was an Arab spring. It was not a regional spring. Uh, The the massive strikes led by lawyers in Pakistan didn't create a blip in the Arab world. The Iranian uh, revolt in in 2009, uh, people said, looked rather admiringly at it. But it didn't change the landscape at all. It was a young man in Tunisia uh, who burned himself that, that actually created the wildfire that began to spread. So th- this, was, uh, this was Arab, and, I, and so in, and in the reverse, I don't think that the, I, while I think Iranians have looked at the Arab Spring and, and there's been much commentary about the fact, they can, why can't we, I, I don't think that it juggled the numbers. I was arguing that the Arab Spring effect is an Arab effect. Um, on the connectivity issue, though, the, you're, the numbers are about right. Um, although in UAE, they're much higher. It's almost 80%. Um, but then that's because there's a huge expat workforce in the country that's connected. And in Libya, the, it was fascinating. When the Libyan revolt started, the, 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 uh, the Facebook and Twitter uh, users in the country dropped precipitously because it was all the foreign workers going home. Um, This was not a Libyan phenomenon. This was not a Libyan phenomenon at all. Um, In the Arab countries, for the most part, the 30% range that Marwan mentioned is about right in the countries that we we polled. Um, In the urban areas where we polled, it's about double that. Um, It's about double that. And um, and Facebook penetration is very high. Um, It it, um In Jordan and in lebanon it 's more than one to one because people have multiple accounts um, and in most of the other countries it 's uh, of those who are, are online it 's about sixty seventy percent so and the explosion of facebook is uh, is amazing um, it, it's, it, it, it has increased you know uh, in, in a trajectory that looks like this now. It didn't create the revolt. I think Marwan was right. It was a tool that was used by those who were organizing the revolt. And it has limits, it, it, built-in limits. Uh, it created space for communication. It provided a way around um, national, traditional media that, that blocked them out. If you were a, a youth organizer trying to pull together a rally uh, and held a press conference, you could be sure that Al Ham wasn't going to cover it but you could create your own media, and that media actually <coughs> spread virally. Um, the We Are All Khalid Said page also grew just incredibly over a period of time. And like moveon.org um, was able to create meetups, meetups that created flash rallies and ultimately created much larger rallies, and actually worked as a tool that was very effectively used. The, the thing we noted, because we our survey not only was a survey of opinion but also of behavior when we had people tracking messaging on Facebook and Twitter what we found was that the youth revolutionaries weren't the only people using the device i mean if you track the those supportive of the regime and those supportive of the demonstrators there were days when the supporters of the regime had far more messages on Facebook and Twitter than the than the demonstrators did It wasn't until actually Mubarak stepped down that it it shifted um, with a caveat. And that is that you then had a split between the the Brotherhood and its use of Facebook, which it uses rather extensively. I remember when the constitutional reform uh, thing was passed, if you talk to young people in the, the the, uh, the, the movement, they were convinced that it was going to pass overwhelmingly. Because everybody that they'd had coffee with that day was voting against the constitutional reform because it was a device the government worked together with the brother Track messaging on, on, uh, on, on both SMS and Twitter and Facebook by a margin of literally tens of thousands to one, the messaging voting for the Constitution trumped those who were opposed to the constitution. So th- the point was was that people who didn't want change to the same degree that the young people wanted change were using the same tools as the regime, which had its own electronic army in place, saying support Mubarak. If Mubarak goes, all hell breaks loose, etc. Uh, and the Syrians are doing the same. I mean, it, it. This is not. This is a neutral tool that can be used by anybody. Um, and it worked for organizers. It created space. It allowed them to, uh, uh, to communicate and to organize. The one thing I think that it did most successfully, and, and in Syria and in Libya in particular, was it created not only its own network, and I mean network in the media sense, its own television network. They were able to download selected material from BBC or from whatever and put it up. For people to see. So if you didn't have access, you now through Facebook did have access to a whole sort of pre-selected media that told the story, the narrative that revolutionaries wanted to tell. Secondly, it also developed a synergy with traditional media in that it broadcast to them information that was able then to be picked up by the international media, et cetera, and make the story bigger than life, so that we wouldn't know about what was going on in Syria had it not been for social media, which then broadcast their, uh, their information to the traditional media, which then picked it up, which is why, as Marwan notes, that uh, one survey found was that the, the, the big winner uh, in terms of use in the region is traditional media. Because it's not just that by two to one, people say, I now use traditional media more than social media for information and news. They still use social media, but they use it for the purposes that they traditionally used it for, meeting up family and friends, communicating with each other, et cetera, et cetera, not for news and information. The main reason being that traditional media is still more trusted. It's considered a more reliable source than social media in part because people you know once you post you get the feeling well if I can say anything I want to say I guess everybody else can say whatever they want to say so if I'm gonna see this thing on the network, I tend to believe it much more than if I'm just reading it on Facebook and it's somebody's opinion anyway I just wanted to make those comments because we didn't get into this part of the survey but uh, but those are all available in our uh, in our material that is on our website, and you can find the whole poll in all of its forms, uh, all of the different issues that it covered, including the social media uh, on the website. And again, that was the part that we presented at the Sir Forum in, uh, uh, in Abu Dhabi in, uh, in November.
4: OK. Before I take, I see some other hints, but I'd like to ask another question myself. And it's concerning the issue of employment, and it is, do you have any data Uh, in your polling that allows you to uh, judge to what extent people see the connection between the political reform and employment. Marwan made the point earlier on that it's not just a question of, you know, solving economic issues, that you cannot solve the economic issues without addressing some of the political issues. You don't have any... No, I
2: I don't. I, we never asked the question directly. Nor, if I strung three or four questions together, I might be able to come up with something in terms of an interpretation of it. But no, no, no direct question that dealt with, uh, with, 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 with that connection. Just one one thing though that that came to mind as I was thinking about this when you were talking about the privatization issue. I mean that 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 became its own problem, as it has in the Soviet in the former Soviet Union countries as well. So that people looked at Egypt, for example, and saw the GDP going up. They looked at Tunisia and saw the GDP going up, and that was because there was a degree of privatization, and and those 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 uh, economies were growing. But it was that also was the kleptocracy factor, and that it was a growing for a small number of people, and was not filtering down, so that income, real income of real people, was getting lower. Well. Sounds again a lot like here, Uh, but um, (laughs) somebody actually did. The income gap in America today uh, between the very rich and the very poor is greater than it was in Egypt at the time of the revolution. There's no deterministic factor that produces a revolt, but it is a shocking number here, but it also was a shocking number there. So that while the World Bank and IMF were looking at Egypt and saying it's doing very well, uh, that wasn't the number you were getting back from people. It's not doing well. It was not doing well.
4: Okay. Are there any more questions? I see one there. And I'll take one last round. Okay. So. Um,
7: Stanley Cobra. Um, it has been said that the people have lost their fear. That is why they're going out in the streets in Egypt, in Syria, Tunisia. Lost their fear. Now, internationally, we preserve peace through deterrence. And I feel like we have to restore our deterrent. Deterrence is based on fear. So if people lose their fear domestically, could that also manifest itself internationally if countries base their strategy on deterrence? Any other questions? This is...
4: the. Uh the last chance you have. <laughs> OK. All right. I, th- I think
2: some people have lost their fear, but not everyone. And it, it, you lose your fear from about one thing, but you don't lose your fear about something else. So it may be true that in uh, Syria, some folks have lost their fear of the regime and demonstrate. But a whole lot of people are afraid of change in Syria and what it might mean for their personal security or the security of their community. They're not demonstrating, and they support the regime. When, when former President Mubarak gave that speech that everybody thought was disconnected from reality, um, he was speaking over the heads of the square to a whole lot of people in Egypt who were not demonstrating. And he really believed that they would turn the tide, what Nixon used to call the silent majority. Um, and we're seeing today in Egypt this disconnect between those who've lost their fear and are in the square and those who aren't in the square who say let things get back please I mean we're, I, we're not working income is is dropped there's no tourism etc there is a disconnect here that is real between those who've lost fear and those who haven't and those who are afraid of other things um, and on the international level deterrence um, there I mean I, I I believe back to Iraq that the 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 great irony of that war was that it was the war of the project for a new American century that was supposed to secure American hegemony for a decade, and the result of it was it weakened us. It made us more vulnerable. It empowered and emboldened uh, those who would oppose us, and uh, and restri- restricted our our ability to operate in some ways in a region uh, where we have such vital interests and 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 so much is at stake. Um but that doesn 't mean that that uh we 've lost our ability to still be um, af- to have people be afraid of us and uh uh the the use of drones for example have become a fearsome uh, weapon uh one I, one that I personally find immoral uh, and totally objectionable but uh we still have a way of projecting power even in this period of of some decline um, so it 's not um, um, an open-shut case on on, on fear and, and, and deterrence internationally or in each country domestically.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your participation. And let me ha- uh, thank not only Jim Zogby, but his brother as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
2: And thanks to Colonel.